Hi, my name is Amber, and thanks for watching today. Before we get started, we wanted to fill you in on our church. Here at Grace Community Church, we have a mission and purpose. Our goal is to point people towards Jesus. If you are looking for a church, we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. There are a couple different ways for you to start getting connected to Grace. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and more information about service times and smaller groups can be found at ohiograce.com. We would also like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. The times are 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We have a great time gathering for music, hanging out, and learning about who God is and how that affects our lives. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next week here at Grace. We're, we're in a series on parables, and parables are simply simple stories with a profound truth that Jesus, simple stories Jesus used to convey profound truth. And we're going to look at one of those parables. It's a parable of the wedding feast. It's a little tougher parable. We're going to try to go through it quickly. It's in Matthew chapter 22. There's actually another parable very similar. Jesus told parables on multiple occasions, but that's a, a different one in Luke 14. But Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. But before we get there, I want to set the context of exactly what's going on uh, while Jesus is telling this parable. Jesus came, and his ministry only lasted three short years. And during that ministry, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was coming. And then increasingly over those three years, he revealed himself as the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for for hundreds of years. But as he did that, after as those three years started coming to a close... Most of the Jewish leaders had come to a point where they rejected Christ as the Messiah. Now, the masses, they enjoyed Jesus' teaching, and they were kind of awed by his authoritative and straightforward way of communicating. And that, that was a lot different than what they were used to with the Pharisees, whose teaching was more complicated, more complex, and then it was all about making it so, so these laws could be followed through their tradition. And, uh, and then they kind of looked at the people, looked down on them with contempt because they weren't doing everything that the Pharisees were doing and said that this is what you need to do to get it right. But even the masses, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, although he is popular, when they started realizing that Jesus came as Messiah, but... He had no intention of being a political ruler and throwing uh, off the yoke of Rome or, or revolting against the occupation of Rome. When the masses started figuring that out, their acceptance of Jesus turned in to rejection of Jesus. And it's at this point in his ministry that he tells this parable of the wedding feast. And as he tells this parable... He really ends up answering two very basic questions that I think we can all have about God. And, and specifically, they're questions about heaven. The first is, what is heaven like? And, and then there's another one we're going to look at is, is, why didn't everybody go there? But first of all, what is heaven like? If somebody came to you, a friend of yours who was not a believer, and they said, Hey, what's heaven like? 
How would you answer that? Formulate that in your mind right now. Because we're going to look in just a moment how Jesus answered that question. And we'll see how similar or not that is. So what is heaven like? Let's go to Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. He says, Jesus spoke, and by the way, he's in, there's crowds following him. This is about a third in a series of parables that came all together at this point in his ministry. He's been in, there's been opposition from the Pharisees. He's really called them out a couple times, and then he sort of wraps that time up with this parable. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So first of all, what's heaven like? Jesus says it's like a celebration. It's like a feast. It's like a joyful time of celebration with the king. And in this picture, that, uh, this word picture, this story, the king's son is getting married. Every, and there's an implication here because he says he sent out his slaves to, to call those who had been invited. There had been an RSVP put out. People had responded to that. And now the king sends out notice, it's now, it's ready, it's time. And they didn't respond. But the king is gracious and he sends out another group of servants and they go out and they say, hey, it's on right now. I mean, again, no, no refrigeration back then, everything's butchered, it's all prepared. I mean, it's happening now and still they didn't want to come. So first of all, the king of heaven is like a celebration. I think a lot of times that's not the way our culture views heaven. And that's not a, the way a lot of us as Christians view heaven. We should view heaven as a celebration with God forever. We should view our relationship with God with joy. God brings us. He makes joy possible. He pours joy into our life because we don't deserve it. But yet we're invited into the wedding feast. And it's easy to miss having that kind of joy as a believer. And it's not only that it's a celebration, it's that we're going to find in a, mo in a moment, it's not just those who are were RSVP'd, it's everybody that's invited. We're all invited to the celebration. Everyone. Okay, mass confession time. Are you ready? Yeah, about 20 of you are ready, but so get... Mass confession, how many of you watched the royal wedding yesterday? All right, okay. You watched some of it, at least like say five or ten minutes of it. Raise your hand if you watched that yesterday. Okay. Of those who watched it, how many of you got up early at 5 a.m. when the wedding was actually live and you watched it then? Yeah, there's, there's a few. You do realize that we won our independence from England, right? You know, that we really, that we don't follow them anymore. Yeah. It, it's a big deal, right? And it's been all over the news and everything. And think of how much bigger of a deal it is in England. And then, you know, this, this is like a once in a lifetime celebration. 
In Jesus' story, that's exactly what it is. It's a once-in-a-lifetime celebration that people are invited to. And everyone is invited. I mean, the parable could end right there. But then Jesus continues with it because he ends up answering another question. And that is simply, if the kingdom of heaven is like a celebration, if it's like a, a party filled with joy, then why doesn't everyone come? Why doesn't everyone respond? You know, what's up with that? And, and as we continue in verse 5, we'll, we'll just keep on going here in the parable. But they paid, so that he sends out to the second group. He says, hey, it's on, it's now, everything's butchered, ready to go. A second time they're invited, verse 5, but they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite into the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes and said to him, friend. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And, and the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So the first part, we get this picture. We'll get to the second part later. Is the king invites those who have RSVP'd. They don't come. He sends out another group of servants to re-invite them. They still don't come. And some respond that way. Some is even worse. And so why is it that the kingdom of God can be like a celebration, but some people cannot respond to the invitation because everyone's invited. And the first response is some just ignore the invitation. They're just indifferent to the invitation. That's what we saw in verse 5 where it says, but they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. They're indifferent about the wedding. They don't care about the invitation. They don't care about the king. They're too busy with their own pursuits, their own personal pursuits, that they really just don't give a rip. And, and Jesus now is citing these shallow excuses to show how these impolite guests they had really no real reason for staying away. They're just, uh, hey, we're busy. They just don't care. Now, in this story, as Jesus is talking about the multitude and also the Pharisees, as in other parables, the Pharisees start figuring out, and the people too, who they are. Because Jesus' audience is mainly Jewish people, and the Jewish people in the first century of course, consider themselves chosen by God, which is, there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. So they rightly understood that they were God's chosen people. And so they were waiting for the Messiah. They felt that they were the RSVP. They were the ones. 
that were waiting. They were God's chosen people. They were waiting for the banquet. They felt that they were already invited. They're just waiting for the celebration. And as Jesus tells this story and they're not willing to come, it's pointing out the fact that, well, here is the Messiah. He's proclaimed the kingdom of God. He's revealed himself as Messiah, but you're not responding to him. That's what he's pointing out. That you don't care. And of course, there's people like that today, right? People can understand the gospel or even hear the gospel that, hey, God loves you and died for you and made a way for you to be forgiven and be with him forever. He wants you to come and celebrate in his kingdom. And a lot of people, they just don't care. They're busy with life. They don't have time. They don't, they're, they're just into their own personal pursuits. They're too busy. They don't want to respond. It's the same kind of response that he's talking about. They're preoccupied, people today, and they purposely decline God's invitation because they feel like their life is already full. But that's not the only way people respond. Why, why do people not go to heaven? Well, sometimes they ignore their invitation, but sometimes they respond with hostility. Sometimes it's even worse. And that's what we see in the next couple of verses, 6 and 7. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. By the way, wording like this, is not the way people in our culture view Jesus. This, these are words that Jesus, this is a story Jesus is telling. And it's talking about judgment. He's going to talk more about judgment in, in a little bit in this story. And so we have this picture in the story that they assume these people that sort of rebel against the king's authority and they're even hostile to him, they assume that they're in no danger from the king. They, they have no respect for him. They don't fear him. They ignore the not only just ignore the invitation, it's like they're offended by the invitation. And while they're doing that, they're underestimating their king. And really, by killing the king's servant, it's like they're declaring war on the king. Here, just this year, the United States is moving its embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And, actually, and it's become a little bit of a controversy, which is interesting to me because actually it was in the mid-90s that Congress acknowledged that Jerusalem was the rightful capital of Israel, and doing that, of course, upset a lot of the Arab neighbors of Israel. And then not only that, in the mid-90s, Congress said the, the embassy of the United States would have to be relocated to Jerusalem by 1999. But that never happened. And then because that was a mandate from Congress, every six months, the sitting president since 1999 has been signing a waiver to say that because of security concerns, that should not happen. So it's been Wave this decision that Congress already made to move the embassy has been waived every six months by the sitting president since then until this year. And now we're moving. So what if, what if as we moved our embassy and then we, we put all of our people in there, and so there's you know a couple of hundred Americans, say, in our finished embassy 
in Israel. And, and because some people were upset to that, what, what if a, they were upset with that? What if an army stormed the embassy? And by the way, an embassy is sort of like your country owns a piece of ground in another country. It's really under the country's uh, jurisdiction. But let's say somebody, an army there in Israel, they stormed the embassy, they beat up a hundred of our employees there, and they kill the other half of the employees. How would we respond? Well, that's an act of war. Whoever sent that army is basically declared war. And that's kind of the picture we have in this. We're not used to having kings, but when a king sends his messengers out to his own subjects and says, come to the feast, and some of them just ignore, that's one thing. But the other ones who kill the messengers, that's an act of war. That's rebellion. That's treason. And it's not like the king then declares war on them. War is upon the king because their act is war, just like our embassy. If somebody stormed it, it's the same thing. And we realize that Jesus is telling this parable in a point in history John the Baptist, the main messenger from God to say the Messiah has come, has been beheaded. And in a very short time, Jesus, the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for for hundreds of years, at the instigation of the Jewish leaders, is going to be tortured to death, killed. And the people start understanding, especially the leaders, that Jesus is talking about them. And don't miss that language. You know, this, this hostility toward God is going to be dealt with by him. I don't know if you realize this, but actually in the last 15 years, there's been a movement among atheists where they have become more hostile to the gospel. Not just combative, but hostile toward it. They... We get people have questions, and, and we love talking to people who don't believe in God or agnostics or atheists or whatever, and, and try to answer those questions. But I'm not talking about people like that. I'm talking the new atheists is how they term themselves. They are completely hostile to religion. They're hostile to the gospel. They're hostile to the Bible. They're hostile to Jesus Christ as God. And that's kind of a shift. It, it wasn't like that 20 years ago. But it's like that now, and it's going to be increasingly like that. And we need to be ready for that because we are on mission. We are commissioned by God, all of us as believers, to tell people about the kingdom. And we need to gear up that some of the people we talk to will not just simply be indifferent. Some people will be openly hostile from the get-go and all the way through. But there's another way to respond to the gospel, and that is with humility. So some respond with indifference, some respond with hostility. But then what does the king do? The king says, go everywhere, invite everyone, go out to the highways. And this is just a picture of the king saying, go out to all the populated areas where you can find any amount of people and invite every single person in. And so all these people, they come in, and they're coming in right now. Everything's ready right now. They don't have time to go home. They can't prepare. A lot of them wouldn't have appropriate clothing to wear to a king's royal reception like this. And so there's the implied unwritten part of this is that the king has provided all of them 
wedding garments. And we know that later because everybody at one's wearing these and they normally wouldn't have that. The king's inviting everybody, both good and evil. Everybody is invited to come in and celebrate. And the king provides wedding garments as they come in to celebrate in style in the kingdom, the royal wedding. And that's what people do. People respond and they come and they're unworthy. By the way, the good and the evil, the morally good, the morally evil are both unworthy. But they respond to the king's invitation and they come in and they enjoy the feast. I don't know exactly how this went down yesterday at the royal wedding, but you know, it used to be a lot of times in traditional weddings, there's a huge dinner, right? So let's say the royal family, and I know they had some sort of a meal, but I don't know much about it because we, I wasn't invited. Can you believe it? But so they have this big meal and all, you know, the guest list is very restrictive. Did you figure that out? I mean, last week, that was all the talk, right? Who got invited? Who didn't get invited? None of us got invited, by the way, in case you don't realize that. We were left out. So they're a very restrictive guest list. What if, what if they're having the wedding and, and then the big meal? And what if they said, hey, anybody in the world who's really into this, and if you have a bunch of friends that are really into the royal wedding, you can sign up a group of five people and you can kind of send this into England and by lottery, they're going to pick one. And so five friends get to go that, are, that say they're really into the royal family or they're really a foodie or preferably both. And let's say that happened. And some of you who raised your hand who are kind of into the royal wedding thing and you're a foodie, you got selected. And you got to go with five of your most interested friends flown over to England. And then you're there and you're watching the whole wedding. And then afterwards, there, there's a huge feast, like in Jesus' story. It's a celebration. And they provide your clothing. I mean, it's everything. You don't have to worry about what to wear. It's all there. And for the ladies, a hat that matches. I mean, you're all set. And then they start bringing out the food. Let's say there's like 10 courses, right? They start bringing out the food. And you and your friends, your foodies, and you look around and all the other royal people who have been to stuff like this before, you know, they're impressed. I mean, this, this is big. So they get served their plate. And, you know, the, the nobility is sitting around going, you know, kind of like with a, wow, looks pretty good. But you and your friends on the end of the table, when you see it, you're like, wow, this is great. And you're high five. I've never tasted anything like this. And you're excited. And you're from America, so you can be excited. And you're kind of pumped up and everything. And then it's the next course and the next course. And about the fourth course, they're saying, hey, time for the fifth course. And you're like, bring it on. This is delicious. You're high five and another course is coming. This is great. That's the way we should be if we're part of the kingdom. God invites us in. We don't deserve it. We have no business being there. But, and it's not a lottery. He knows us and he loves us and he wants to personally celebrate with us forever. And he invites us in. And all we have to do is respond on his terms. 
put on the clothes that he provided and celebrate, celebrate, celebrate and high five and have joy and be with the king. That's how Christians respond. And then there's a twist in the story that Jesus tells. And that's the unusual part. Maybe, you, do you remember that when I read it a while ago? Where this one guy is sitting there and he's not wearing the clothes and that doesn't turn out so well for him. You know, the king's like, why? And the guy's speechless. He has no excuse because they're provided, they're free. And he said, no, I'll just kind of wear my own stuff. I don't like hats or, you know, whatever. They just, he got nothing. And then he's thrown out, cast out. That's a picture of people, they don't ignore the invitation. They're not hostile to God. These are the, and, and by the way, I think this is the main warning for all of us today that Jesus is giving in this story. These are the people who are responding to the invitation, but they're doing it on their own terms. These are people who they're okay with God, and if God's inviting them, hey, I'm coming, but they're really unprepared because they have not come to God on God's terms. They have not come into the feast with the wedding garments that were provided for them for free. And we kind of see that happening a lot today. We just kind of did this survey, and and I got to tell you, here at Grace, and, and because you guys are Grace, you know, our main concern is we want to see people come to Christ. We want to see people enter into the kingdom. We want to see people have their life changed. But in order to do that, you've got to do it on God's terms. And, and what happens, a lot of people, they think they're in the kingdom, but they really haven't done that. They've done it their way, not God's way. When people come into membership at our church, which we call 101 class, and that's just an hour-long class that meets third hour over in the quad. We have it every couple of months or so. When they come in, we ask what we call diagnostic questions. Our main concern when people come into membership, the only requirement for membership is that you actually be a Christian. So we ask a few questions on a little questionnaire. Among other things, just uh, you know, about your life a little bit where, where, you know, and where you live and all that stuff, we're asking a few diagnostic questions. They're questions to help us figure out if you really understand what Christianity is all about. And one of those questions that we've used probably for 20 years says this. And by the way, this is not going to happen. This is just hypothetical, but it'll say this will be the question. If you, found, if you died and found yourself standing before God in heaven and God, and, and he's not going to say this, but if he did say this, why should I let you in? What would you answer? And then there's some blanks. And I just want to tell you that there's a few answers that we see over and over and over, very common, that are wrong. Because it's people coming to God on their own terms, not on God's terms. The first one is this. Maybe the first most popular incorrect answer is people... And, and now think in your mind... And don't shout it out. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Just think in your mind. What if that was you? You died today. You found yourself standing before God in heaven. Again, that's not going to happen, but let's just say it did. And God said, why should I let you into heaven? What is your answer? First of all, if your answer is, 
well, well, God, I've always believed in you. I've always believed. That is not a correct answer because you did not always believe. Especially you did not always believe in a salvation way because belief in a salvation way, and sometimes we use the word faith or trust, they're all connected. Belief means that you understand that you have sinned against God and that you're totally unworthy and can't do anything about that. And you understand that Jesus came as a perfect human being, God-man, and he actually died on the cross to pay your personal sin penalty and my sin penalty so that we would have a way to be forgiven and we put our belief, our faith, our trust in Jesus as the Son of God and Him alone and Him dying for our sins. That's belief. You don't always believe that. You come to a point, once you can understand that gospel, which is that news, that good news, you come to a point that once you can understand that news to respond to it. To say, I've always believed, is you're coming to God on your own terms. You're saying, well, you know, I've never been against God, so I'm good with God. And I'm kind of doing my own thing, and I'm good with God, and I don't need to do anything else, and everything's great. No, it's not great. That's coming to God on your own terms, and you will be cast out. The second most popular response that's wrong would be, um, let me see, what, what if, uh, draw a blank here. What, what would that be? The second most popular response is, I tried the best I could. Why should I let you in heaven? Well, God, I've done my best. I've tried my best to follow you. What that reveals about you is that you think salvation is based on your works or what you do in life, how well you live the Christian life. And that's a complete misunderstanding of Christianity. As a matter of fact, you've just bought into the lie of every other religion in the world that teaches you you have to do certain things in order to merit favor from God and be okay. And the problem with that is normally you never know if you've crossed that line or not. You never know if you've done good enough, done enough good things to be let in or not. That is coming to God on your own terms and not on God's terms. That's a prideful response. That's saying, well, because when you say that, you're kind of saying, well, God, you know, I've tried pretty hard and actually I've done a pretty good job. If I don't say so myself, I mean, you should be good with me. I go to grace. And that's not good enough. Because it's not by our works. It's all grace. There's nothing good that we can do to ever earn God's favor. We're in rebellion against Him. We've sinned against Him. We've broken His standards. All of us have. We've all done what He's told us not to do. We've all separated ourselves from a righteous and holy God. But God's made a way. And it's not through us living a good life, although that should follow Christianity, but that's not the reason. It's because Christ died to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And then one more response that's not right. And I want to be careful that you understand what I'm saying here. Otherwise, you'll be walking out here saying I'm a heretic. So tune in or don't quote, you know, one or the other. Anyway, 
that you've prayed the sinner's prayer, but your life has not changed. You prayed the sinner, well, God, I prayed the sinner's prayer. But the reality is nothing changed in your life. You see, it's easy for us to hear the good news, the gospel that Jesus came to die for us and just simply through faith we can be forgiven. But if our motive is simply, well, here I am, I'm living life the way I want to live and I'm going to continue living life the way I want to live and now my friend is telling me that I'm a sinner and that Jesus came and I'm okay with Jesus coming and he died on the cross and if I just admit my sin and ask for forgiveness, then I'm good forever. So, oh, by the way, hang on, in between bites of my ham, ham sandwich. Oh, by the way, God, yeah, I know I'm a sinner and, and forgive me for my sins. But, and now I can be at peace about living my life any way I want. If that's your attitude, that's not a sincere response to the gospel. That's not a, it's not a sincere response to the invitation that God gives us. Because of this, because if you've come to the point in your life that you realize that your, your own sin has separated from you, God, and that's true of all of us, that my sin has separated me from a holy and righteous God, and that there's nothing I can do to fix that, there's no good works that I could do to, to mitigate that or to take any of those sins away, because the good works is what I'm supposed to be doing all along. And then when I realize that I'm hopelessly estranged from God, hopelessly separated from God, but God loves me so much, he came to rescue me and he did it at great cost. He allowed his one and only son to come, clothe himself in humanity, and actually allow himself to be tortured to death on the cross of Calvary in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And when we truly appreciate that gift and when we come to him sincerely we are motivated by gratitude to change our lives to want to follow him not that we do that perfect that's why you got to listen close i'm not saying that you become sinless after you become a christian no we still sin i'll even say this while we're sinning probably we're loving that sin more than we love god at that moment in our life and Christians are capable of doing that. But I'm just saying we cannot come to Christ, understand what he's done for us, and at the same time not have at least a desire to follow him. We have to come to God on his terms. Why do people not go to heaven? Some are indifferent. Some respond with hostility. And some just come to God on their own terms and they think they're okay and they're not and they will be cast out. And you'll be no better off than the person who responded with hostility. That's what I'm saying. Last verse, verse 14. That's kind of interesting, right? It, it really speaks to this whole call. That's, and this, again, is a warning that Jesus is giving us those who hear God's call and know of His grace must not think that a call is the same as response. Here Jesus ends with, many are called, few are chosen. And He's, he's really 
speaking about the doctrine of election, and that could be a little confusing. In this parable, those who are called don't necessarily go to heaven. It's those who are called and respond with humble action, you know, respond with humility and a desire to follow Him. Those are who actually go to heaven. A little different in Paul's writings, it's the same truth, but Paul would say, hey, whoever's called, that's who ends up getting saved. Jesus is saying, the people were, because he's using a different illustration, he's saying, hey, those who are called, you got to respond to the call. And what is that? It's just telling us the same truth of this doctrine of election that actually we've been chosen, but God calls everyone, and it's only those who respond with humility and a changed life that we know they've been chosen by God in the first place. And so the most important thing is that you don't leave here without knowing God. And, and I'm not going to lead you in prayer. We, we did that last time. But I, I just want to remind you that if you're a little bit unsure, if you can't look back to a time where, where you feel like your life, the trajectory of your life started changing, a, you know, at least a little bit. Some people change drastically. Some people change over years. But you should be able to look back and see a change in your life since you became a believer and attribute that to God. That's not something that you wanted to do. It's something you felt God wanted you to do. And if you're not sure about that, I want to, I want to just remind you how, how to square that with God. And that is that you just pray to Him admitting your sin. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. And then believing that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay your sin penalty. And by believing and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, not your works, not anything else, just Jesus, that you can be saved. But then if you're sincere, that'll come with a commitment to want to follow him. It's ABC. Admit, believe in Jesus, commit to follow him, want to do that. That's what true salvation is all about. What we want from you more than anything else at Grace is just two things. One, that you would come to faith. That at some point you would have assurance that you're a believer, that you know, yes, I came totally sincerely to God and ask him for salvation, knowing that there's no way I could accomplish that on my own. But then the second thing is that once you come to Christ, you would grow in your life, in your faith, you would grow closer and closer to him. Because that's what the Christian life is all about. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next week here at Grace.